Oh, how power can be an uncomfortable word. But if used well, power can move mountains that will help people. On today's episode, how to use your power for good and not evil. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 254. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show will give you access to the best thinkers, resources, and actions to help you develop your leadership skills. And welcome back if you are returning to the show. If you're tuning in for the first time, I'm so glad to welcome you. Today's topic, one that all of us navigate in leadership, not only in leadership, in really every interaction in our lives, and yet it's a topic that not only uh, many of us don't really understand fully, it's also a topic that comes with a lot of baggage for many of us. I know it does for me, and that is the that is the principle or the topic, or however we're going to frame it around power and how power can be utilized for good or for evil, depending on how you look at it, and also how we can both gain and lose influence. And today's guest is going to really help provide perspective on that. And our guest is Dacker Keltner. He is a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and the faculty director of the UC Berkeley Greater Good Science Center. His research interests span the issues of power, inequality, and social class. And he's the author of the best-selling book, Born to be Good, The Science of a Meaningful Life. And he's here today to share wisdom on his new book, The Power Paradox, How We Gain and Lose Influence. And Daniel Goleman, who's the world's leading authority on emotional intelligence, calls this new book one of the most significant science books of the decade. Dacker, welcome to Coaching for Leaders. Dave, it's great to be with you. I was I was looking over the book and and reading some of your work, Dacker. I was thinking about power and how our view of power is really interesting in our society. And I, I noticed in your writing that you frame our society's view of power as being shaped a lot by one person. I was wondering if you could tell us more about that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's so funny. I mean, cultures, ideas about phenomena like power are shaped by historical developments in earlier books in our history. And there is no doubt that our thinking about power and your listeners and audience members thinking about power was shaped by Niccolo Machiavelli, who wrote The Prince about 500 years ago. And, you know, the, the Prince is a philosophy of power, and it really is based on force and fraud and deception and manipulating people and taking people down so that you can rise in power. But, you know, we have to remember that that philosophy of power, of force and fraud and even violence, was, was necessary in Renaissance Italy 500 years ago, which was a very violent time. But today it's a much different era. And so what I question in the power paradox is, is whether that sort of forceful philosophy of power really works today. And, and most of the studies suggest it doesn't. And I think what it requires we do, Dave, like you're suggesting is, we need to rethink what power is. It's not necessarily a dirty word. It's not necessarily pure Machiavellianism. There are all kinds of examples of good power that we should try to bring into focus. 
Well, you, you hit on something that is I've experienced too, just in, in this show. Uh, I aired an episode a couple of years ago on power and just some of my yeah. my thoughts on power and just some of the things I came across in my own research over the years. And it was interesting, the conversation coming out of that show, a, a few people commented that they don't really like to use the word power when they think about leadership because it does have that sort of negative connotation and and we tend to distance ourselves from that word. And I noticed that you, in your writing, took some time to define some of these terms, not only power, but you define the term status and control and even social class. And I, I was particularly interested in the, the distinction between power and control. And I was wondering if maybe you yeah. could help us illuminate some of that just so we're using the right language. Yeah, no, that, thank you for asking that, Dave. I mean, it's so important and really... As your listeners know, you know, great science and great and good thinking really hinges on clear definitions. And there's a lot of confusion around what power is. Is it money? Is it class? Is it privilege? Is it control? Is it your esteem in society? And there are a lot of people who are working on this in sociology and organizational scholarship and, and in psychology and elsewhere. And we define status as really your, the respect that you enjoy in other people's eyes. We define, and, and I think the field defines control as your ability to have agency and, and control over your own outcomes and actions. And then importantly, control is different from power. And most people are moving toward a definition of power, which I highlight in the power paradox, which is that power is about your capacity to alter the states of other people, be it emotions or thoughts that they have or their economic condition or their physical health. So power is about influencing others and control is just the sense of agency that you have around the outcomes in your life. So they're really separable, right? You can be a, you know, my favorite example is you can be somebody living out in a cave in the mountains and you never see another human being, you have a lot of control over your life. You have absolute control over your life in some sense, but you have no power, right? You're not interacting with others. You're not shifting how they behave. You have no influence. So power is different from control. And it's interesting that you zeroed in on the word control because we've had some conversations just in the recent past on this show about the tendency for a lot of us in leadership to default to wanting to have a lot of control of wanting to, yeah. uh, and this is the classic, yeah. of course, thing. When we think about people we've known who are poor leaders, we think about someone who's very yeah. controlling and very micromanaging. It's interesting that in some ways, I mean, control is good. We all want to have control over our lives, and yet it can get in our way of really being able to influence people. That's a terrific insight, you know, and it's so funny, Dave, you know, I've been teaching leaders and executives here at Berkeley for 20 years and prior to that, Stanford, and, and this is a common thing that people report on when they rise to positions of leadership where you're managing 100 or 200 people is you have the position of, of influence, but suddenly things are out of control, right? You know, the, you're, and in a sense, a key insight into having really good power is to, is to relinquish control, to give away responsibilities, to entrust others to do good work to not micromanage, as you suggest, not coerce, not sort of intentionally direct others. And I think that's where great leadership lies. And, it, and it's aided by this distinction you're drawing between 
the feeling of control versus the feeling of power, that they're really different. And I'm curious, is there a negative correlation between them? Is it is it if you have less control, if you give up control, you can have more power? Or is it more complex than that, that they're not necessarily mutually exclusive? Well, this is why science is really useful, Dave. And we here at Berkeley developed a measure of how much power you have. And one of the tasks that we set to was, okay, let's let's get out into the public and measure people's sense of control and status and and power and the like. And what we find is they're moderately correlated. So your feeling of having influence in the world or at work or in your family does correlate, let's say at 0.15, 0.2 with how much control you have. But, but it really suggests that they're really separable things. As is, and I think this is really important, you know, very often in the United States, we equate power with money. But in fact, the correlation between how much power you feel you have and how much wealth you have is only, again, about 0.15, 0.12, which means it's only about 10% of, of your power comes from money. So they're really separable. And what that frees us up to think about is, is all the ways in which we can really gain power and use it effectively, independent of feeling like we have to control others or have a lot of money. Oh, so interesting. This actually leads into something I wanted to ask you about, which is... Yeah empathy because yeah. I mentioned before you and I talked I've I've followed your work for years I, I love what the greater good centers done at Berkeley and I, I've read many Thank of the you. articles and shared them over the years and I just happened to come across an article you had recently in New York magazine about power and empathy and yeah. one of the principles you talk about in the book is that enduring power comes from empathy tell us yeah. more about that and and how you see those coming together well, you know, it's so striking. I was reading the biography, a biography of Abraham Lincoln, and Thurlow Weed, who is this journalist of Lincoln's era, was just awestruck at Lincoln's political genius, how, you know, rated by historians as our greatest president. And, you know, they're mulling over, like, what's his defining quality? And Thurlow Weed said that Lincoln's political genius, his genius for power, was that he sees all who come to see him, and he hears all of what they have to say. So Lincoln was this, this, he had this incredible capacity for empathy, for understanding others, for engaging in other people's thinking and their, their ideas about the United States. And you know, when I encountered that quote, I started to look at the science that we were doing here, you know, and then other people were doing in organizations and in schoolyards and, and families. And, you know, this ability, Dave, just to stay focused on other people, to listen really carefully and intently, to sort of think about what they're thinking about, to, to respond contingently upon what they're doing, that turns out to be, if you're to think of one thing that'll allow you to have good power and enduring power, that is it, right? And then the studies are really remarkable. There's a study, one of my favorites comes out of MIT, of uh, Woolley and Malone, and what they do is they get graduate students working on really hard quantitative problems, right? Solving them together, like a lot of your listeners do at work, right? Just tough problems that you have to solve as a team. And if the members of that team were just a little bit more empathetic, right? They listened carefully, they asked good questions, they nodded their head when someone spoke, they oriented their body toward the person speaking. The collective intelligence on quantitative problems rose of that group. And, and that finding 
really typifies a lot of findings in the literature that if you can just stay interested in other people and know where their minds are, you will rise in power in schools and in families and in workplaces, and you'll keep your power. People will respect you. Well, and part of the article that was so interesting to me that you wrote about, and I snagged this part of it, you say, in experiments, when people are randomly assigned to a position of power or led to think that they are above others, their ability to read others' emotions suffers. Power even causes empathy deficits in the brain. And it, it was really interesting to me that you cited some studies that are that are now documenting that when people feel powerful or they come from a more privileged background, that the empathy networks in the brain get disengaged when interacting with others. And I was thinking about that and just thinking about different places in my career and different relationships and being more powerful or less powerful at times. And I am sure, Dacker, that I have fallen (laughs) trapped to that. (laughs) Um, And I was thinking, wow, that's really, really interesting. Tell us more about that. How does that play out? Well, you know, this is why I called the book The Power Paradox, right, Dave? And, you know, and I've fallen victim to it, too. I mean, the paradox is this, which is that, you know, you rise in power by sharing. And a lot of studies show when you share, you, you gain power. You rise in power by expressing gratitude. You rise in power and earn the respect of other people. When you're really empathetic, when you show that you understand where they're, where they're coming from, but then once we feel powerful and we feel above others and, and in, we feel the surges of power, like, wow, I'm, I'm in charge of things here. Look at me, how great I am. We, we lose a little bit of those skills that got us power in the first place. We started to do studies in our lab showing that if you randomly put somebody to a, a position of power and you get them to think like, hey, you're a little bit better than other people around you, they're about 15% worse than comparison conditions in judging people's emotions in their facial expressions, right? Mm. They lose a little bit of their edge. Even more dramatically, Keely Muscatel did this amazing work. She was part of my lab as well. If I feel that I'm powerful and I'm from a position of privilege and I'm asked to think about another student in my university If I don't feel powerful, the empathy networks in my frontal lobes are activated. They're thinking, they're working hard to imagine what the other person's thinking or feeling. If I feel powerful and better than other people, those empathy networks are silent, right? So this is one of the real challenges of leadership is to really avoid this empathy deficit and really stay intently focused on other people. Well, that's exactly why I'm I'm asking that question, you know, thinking about empathy and thinking about our audience. I bet yeah. that uh, like you and me, many of our audience members have struggled with this too and and also oh, yeah. are not aware that they've necessarily struggled with it. And um I, I mean maybe this begs the obvious question of if we become aware that this is an obstacle for many of us, what yeah. are some of the ways that we can be proactive in a leadership role where a lot of us do feel right or wrong, more powerful, or, or and, and in, and in yeah. many cases have earned power very legitimately and, and, and through wonderful things that we've done. How do we keep ourselves from falling into that trap? Well, you know, I think that there are two solutions. And, and this, in fact, is what I've been teaching leaders like your audience for the past 15, 20 years is, you know, the first is, is a certain sense of humility, right? Which is that in today's collaborative workplace, our power 
rest critically upon the good work of other people, just always to remember that. My work at UC Berkeley depends on the 15 people in my lab and the 12 people at the Greater Good Science Center and, and then dozens of others. So there is a sense of humility that our power is really only as good as our social networks, and just to remember that. But the other thing, Dave, that I teach, and this comes out of very personal stories that I would hear from the leaders whom I teach, which is they would tell me, you know, that the single greatest demand of rising to positions of power or leadership is just the emotional demands of, of leading people. And so what I teach is kind of this rich tradition of what you might call cultivating an empathetic practice or empathetic listening, which is let's just think about four or five things you can do in every moment when you're not only at work leading, but also when you're at home talking to a a difficult teenager or your romantic partner. And there are things like orient your body toward the person you're speaking to and, and listening to. Make good eye contact. Sit in a more humble position rather than a more domineering position. Use your voice to track that you're listening to the person, right? With, oh, wow, hmm. These are really simple things you can do and, and, and almost like a, an, an empathy exercise regime mm. that when it, once you think about it and you think about each meeting that's part of your day or each team meeting or pitch, suddenly these are tools that you can bring to bear to cultivate more empathy. I am constantly shocked and frustrated at how bad I am at being able to change, at be able to change my own behavior on some things that, like you said, should be should be really simple. It's really hard to like change our behavior when we get used to doing something. And so, I'm really interested in that empathetic. Forgive the term calisthenics, almost of like going through and figuring. Well, I like that a lot. And figuring out what can I do on a daily basis. I, I am curious for leaders you've worked with, and I'm guessing that there's some yeah. people who have who have figured that out, have done that well, have figured out the right practice to do that. What have you seen that's worked of getting, um, of taking what they know they need to do and actually making behavior change come out of it? I think there are the behaviors you can engage in, which I, I'll, you know, I've talked about and I can detail a specific example. And then there's this more, this deeper work that we have to engage in that where we really recognize that one of the things that accompanies leadership and power is the privilege of enhancing the, the lives of other people. And when you adopt that stance, each interaction that you have during the course of your day at work becomes this opportunity for empathy and positive influence. And I think the great leaders, you know, Jim Collins writes about this, that the level five leadership is rooted in service and humility. Mm. And I do think that's true of, of great leadership is recognizing that. You know, I, I remember I worked with, for five years I've worked at Facebook, with their Protect and Care team. What's Protect and Care? I'm, I'm not familiar with the, the term at Facebook. Yeah, it's just a, an expanding wing to Facebook of designers and engineers and product managers and social scientists like myself who are trying to create tools to help people deal with the human problems at Facebook. Like, you know, when you break up with a, in a, a partner how do you have, give people more choice about what content of that former partner they'll see? Right? Oh, interesting. Fascinating. When, oh, it's, it's incredible. You know, if somebody puts up a, a photo and it really hurts your feelings, right? Let's say you're, you're at a picnic and your shirt's off and you're a little, you know, your belly's hanging out and you're like, hey, that's embarrassing. How do you communicate to that person in a, a considerate way to ask them to take the photo down, right? 
lot of really social problems we've been helping with. And my manager there was this really a visionary, Arturo Bejar. And, you know, it's so interesting, Dave. He's a numbers guy. He's an engineer. He liked building computers when he was a kid. But what he would do once he realized how important empathy is, is like when he would interact in each meeting, he would sit in a really humble way. He'd really orient to the person. He literally would take notes about their best ideas, right, in the meetings or at, at team meetings. He, he just had this great way of making eye contact. So I think it's this, this twofold combination of just humbly being aware of how important other people are to your power. And then secondly is, is just to think about the small things you can do, like asking good questions or using your voice to note that you're listening to somebody that show you're, you're connected. I love that idea of just thinking about how you're orienting your body. And I think many people wouldn't be surprised at hearing that advice. And yet, I suspect almost none of us think about it in our community, our listening community on a daily basis as far as how am I orienting my body to listen or not listen or where am I sitting at the table. And I know I'm going to be I'm going to be thinking about that coming out of this conversation. For I sure. know it makes you a little self-conscious, but, yeah, but and this yeah. also connects to the science of power, which is we know when people feel powerful, they do two things that are antithetical to empathy. One is they tend to expand their posture as if they're lifting must weights, you know, <laughs> or like showing off how big they are. And that's kind of a dominance move. And the other thing, I'm not kidding, Dave, there are studies that show that when you feel powerful, instead of moving your body and orienting towards the, someone who's speaking, you literally turn around and look away, right? Or you check your cell phone. And these are these minor abuses or excesses of power that really work against the enduring respect we can enjoy in positions of leadership. One of the things that I, I really appreciate, just looking at the power principles you've identified in the book is, uh-huh. and uh, maybe I'm making this too much about using the word power, but yeah. how powerful power is. So it, I'm just yeah. looking at some of the principles you mentioned, and there's a number of the principles that start with the two words power, or the three words power leads to. And all of the principles that start with that power leads to, it's something negative. <laughs> it's yeah. self-serving yeah. impulsivity, it's incivility and disrespect, narratives of exceptionalism. And yeah. it's just, boy, it's just a reminder to me of how easy yeah. it is to fall into that as much as we don't want to be that person that does those things. Yeah. I know. You know, this. when I was writing The Power Paradox, Dave, I was, I was really struck, and thanks for bringing that into focus, about, you know, and this is literally summarizing hundreds of scientific studies and your listeners will certainly think of personal examples or when they read the newspaper or when they, th- they study history and they think about the behavior of past presidents or popes or whatever, is that a lot of the problems of social living that wear at the fabric of our society are problems of power. You know, one of my favorite examples comes from the work of Christine Porath showing that, you know, she studied 27 different organizations, I think, and three out of four rude behaviors, uncivil behaviors at work, come from people who have power, right? And this is people swearing at a colleague, really humiliating them, telling them that their work is bogus, excluding them from a social event, treating them with disrespect. And, and I was just struck by that finding, and that's the, the incivility find, the principle that power leads to incivility, that a lot of the 
kind of the, the wearing of the social fabric we're worried about today come from people abusing their power. And then you get into the ethical realm and your work by Adam Galinsky and our lab and others are finding, you know, it's the powerful people who are kind of, you know, taking stuff home from work and driving impulsively and, and lying to, to get ahead. So that once we feel above other people, there are a lot of troubles that ensue. And, and that's why, we, you know, your audience in positions of power and, and with the privilege to assist other people in their lives, you got to take this seriously, that this is, a, this is an important responsibility we have to not uh, arrogantly abuse our, our positions of power. Well, it's interesting that one of the principles you mentioned is power leads to incivility and disrespect. And we, yeah. we did a show about a year ago with Sharon Bar-David, who's written a book called Trust Your Canary. And she, she zeroes in on how to tame workplace incivility. And when we aired that episode, it, it was really incredible to me how many people reached out, and not only to her, yeah. but to me, just that, that incivility that she talked about in the workplace and how that resonated with so many people of that showing up. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and like you said, often from people who are in powerful positions. And it's really interesting how that, that, that it's, it's so present in so many of our organizations and, and something we really need to be vigilant on. You know, the studies show if you have a leader who's pushing you around or swearing at you or saying something that's demeaning, you know, you literally feel physiologically stressed out. You're, doing, you're not doing your best work. You feel disengaged from your work. You're more likely to move to another job. And the other thing that I would add to this is, you know, as I've taught this science, you know, which is pretty intuitive for 20 years to leaders like your audience, I would have people come up to me at the break and they would say, you know, they would provide the positive counterpart and they would say, and this is what I talk about in terms of enduring power, and, and making power a force for good at work and in your family life, I'd have people come up to me and say, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about. I had one boss like that, but I have this other boss, and every now and then she'll come by and say thank you, or she'll, she'll give me a handwritten note appreciating my work, and it makes, the, it makes my work meaningful. Mm. As much, it's as important as my salary is to get the civil respect from the people who lead me I was blown away by how regular these examples of respect are and gratitude. So just as, it, as uh, incivility can wear down our commitment to work, there's this whole other realm of positive leadership that we can put into practice. I love it. Well, speaking of power and empathy, um, I'm curious in, in your role and, and particularly in your work, Decker, as you've researched power and, and many of the other areas you've looked at over the years, I'm curious, what's something that you've changed your opinion on or maybe that you hold now that you didn't hold three or four or five years ago that looking into this research and working with leaders has really uh, perhaps changed your thinking on something? Well, there's a, a deep lesson. I, I, Dave, was like you. You know, it's funny when I didn't mean to study power 20 years ago. I, I meant to, but I had no idea where it would lead. And, and like you, and probably like a lot of your listeners, I was like, power is kind of this dirty word or it's this taboo subject. And when I would tell people like, well, I study kindness, people were like, that's great. And when I tell people I study power, they look at me as if, you know, I was a danger <laughs> in the world. <laughs> that's awesome. And, 
And and you know I I honestly used to believe like power is a is a dangerous force and we should move our organization and family life towards the absence of power but I I totally disagree with that view now and I really see power as having this enormous force for good and what I profile in the power paradox are lots of examples of powerful people who use it for positive social change you know and and history, history, you know, one of my favorite examples is Thomas Clarkson, and it still astounds me. He's a young guy in England at age 19. He wrote an essay against the horrors of slavery for a weird essay contest. He won. That essay got him in contact with abolitionists of the time, and he became this person who would travel around and influence others, and he literally led to the abolition of slavery, right, through this act of power and influence and change the world economy. Totally improbable, but that's an act of positive power. So in doing the science and thinking about the great examples, and also seeing great leaders in the people I teach, or at Facebook, or Pixar, or Google, where I work, I feel like I have changed fundamentally about what power is, so much so that now with my teen daughters, I want them to have a lot of power. I want them to go out and feel like they can change the world. Well, and I, I, I love that. And I also really appreciate how you framed the book and looking at the paradox and looking at both sides. And on yeah. the positive side, and one of the principles also is power comes from empowering others. And yeah. it's such a hopeful, positive view of this because it's accessible to all of us. And especially in the internet age now, we all have yeah. the ability potentially to empower, to alter the, the states of others in really positive ways. And it's, it's really an exciting time to be able to think about leadership and utilizing power so well in so many different venues. So I'm, I'm so grateful for your work, Dacker, and all the, the things you bring in this book. And I'm, I'm really excited to share this conversation with our audience. Thank you so much, Dave. I, I, this has been an amazing conversation. Wish there were more. Dacker Keltner is the author of the new book, The Power Paradox, How We Gain and Lose Influence. Thanks, Dacker. Thanks, Dave. Keep up the good work. The thing I'm thinking about coming out of this conversation is body positioning, especially in one-on-one conversation as we talked about and how that can influence power and the power dynamics. And uh, I, I know certainly when I've thought about that in the framework of large groups and facilitating training programs and classrooms over the years, when I've taken the time as a facilitator to change the format of the room and to get tables out of the way and just get people in a circle or talking with each other, it is really interesting how almost everyone in the room comments on it. People refer back to it weeks, sometimes months later, as far as the dynamic of the conversation that emerged. It's the kind of thing that a lot of times we don't think about as regularly as we should. I know I don't, but if you are able to take some time to just think about those dynamics, it really does influence the conversation. So thanks, Dacker, for getting me thinking about that. And I hope that you found as well some things you can take action on immediately coming out of this conversation to utilize power well to influence people and to influence your organization effectively. As always, comments and questions are welcome. Coachingforleaders.com slash feedback is where to go for that. And also the place to submit your questions for the next Q&A episode coming up. Episode number 256, the first Monday of the month is always Q&A episodes. So submit your question now 
for that. And this week, also a big thank you to those of you who came out in person for the Chicago meetup about a week and a half ago. It was fabulous getting to meet so many of you in person. And I know there was a bunch of people who wanted to be there and couldn't for whatever reason. 10 minutes before the event started, the rain came pouring down in downtown Chicago. We had to change the location last minute. And yet still every single person who said they were going to be there came, found the new location. It was awesome. Outside of getting to spend time with my family, it was absolutely the highlight of my trip uh, to Chicago. So thank you to everyone who attended. I'm so glad to get connected with you personally. And if you'd like to stay up to date on future meetups, we'll absolutely be doing more of those. Uh, Definitely keep listening. And of course, if you join the weekly leadership guide, that's a great way to stay up to date on things that are happening in the Coaching for Leaders community as well. And the other reason to join the leadership guide is you will get access to my reader's guide that lists the 10 leadership books that will help you to get better results from others and brief summaries from me on the value of each of those books. It's an 11-page reader's guide and a nine-minute video on those book recommendations and insight as well for me on two of those books that I rely on weekly for my own leadership development. One of those books is Dale Carnegie's classic book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. There's so much in that book that seems common sense to so many of us, certainly does to me in a lot of ways. And yet, I know for myself, it's not always part of my common practice and behavior each day. And this conversation today is reminding me of the power in that book and those words, and more importantly, in the actions behind them. If that's of interest to you, in addition to all the other books that are listed there, go to coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. That also gives you access to the show notes every week and my resources that'll help you to continue your leadership development. Again, coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. Have a fabulous week and I'll speak with you again next Monday. Take care.